welcome to The Digital Patient, where we discuss the latest advancements in digital patient engagement and share stories from the front lines. I'm your host, Alan Sardana, and with me as always is Seamless MD CEO, Dr. Joshua Liu. Today, we're joined by our very special guest, Dr. Thomas Maddox. Dr. Maddox is the inaugural executive director of the Healthcare Innovation Lab, a collaboration between BJC Healthcare and Washington University School of Medicine. He's a practicing cardiologist and professor of medicine at the Washington University School of Medicine. He has authored over 250 peer-reviewed publications, received numerous grants exploring optimal cardiac care and outcomes, and holds national leadership positions in the American College of Cardiology. Tom, welcome to the show. Thank you. You've had a fascinating career in healthcare. Your work has spanned so many different areas, including policy and epidemiology, cardiology, technology. And I even read, I think you maybe wanted to be an internist at some point in time. And so I'm really curious, what was the start for you to want to get into healthcare in the first place? Yeah, um, you're right. I have kind of moved all around. Peripatetic is sort of my SAT word that I sometimes use to describe my meandering career. But it's been, it's always been um, sort of motivated by just curiosity and enjoying learning. And that was probably where I first hit on the idea of a career in medicine. I actually, in college, wasn't on the pre-med track. I was thinking more actually legal law school, my family, a fair number of lawyers in my family. And I was a history and economics major, and a lot of my fellow classmates were headed that direction. But about my junior year, I remember having a, I was at lunch with a classmate and he said, well, what do you want to do with a law degree? And I told him all the things that I could do, but none of them were practicing law. And he's like, huh, so why would you go to law school if you actually didn't want to practice law, which I thought was an important question. So with that, I sort of went back to first principles of, well, what, what is actually interesting to me? And several things were, despite my majors, I'd always been interested in science and scientific inquiry. I knew that I really enjoyed learning. And even after I had graduated from a formal school, I didn't want that stop. I wanted my career to always have continual learning as a feature. And then finally, I just wanted to continue to work with people. I, although you could imagine a science career could take you into a lab or other places that might be a little bit less public-facing, I knew that I wanted public-facing to be part of my career. So when I put all those together, pretty quickly, medicine popped up as, yeah. a, as an option. So my senior year, I took my senior seminars in history and economics and freshman chem, just to see if that even held, if I could pass. Uh, and I did, and I enjoyed it. And so I took a couple more years after graduating to get all my pre-med requirements out of the way and then started med school at Emory and never looked back. It's been a great career. I was really happy with the choice. Fantastic. And the world is grateful that you made that choice. You've done so many amazing discoveries in your time. After completing your medical degree, you joined the internal medicine residency and you did actually two fellowship programs, one in healthcare policy and then another in cardiology. And at the same time, you also got your master's degree in epidemiology. So those are all kind of uncommon interests, but I understand the pursuit of learning and wanting to be with people in healthcare. But how do you think all of, all of these different kind of disparate trainings worked together and how you're thinking about digital care today? Yeah, you know, I think even though they may on the surface seem a little random, there was a method to my madness. I remember in residency, 
I was training in Dallas, Texas at the Safety Net Hospital there, Parkland Hospital, which is a great training program. But we also treat some of the poorest patients who have a lot of health problems, also have a lot of social problems. And I remember just thinking, oh my gosh, this system is just a mess, totally broken, didn't make sense on how we could possibly help the folks we needed to help, just given the sort of chaotic and poorly designed system that we had. So I knew that after my training, I didn't want to just practice frontline medicine. I also wanted to see where there are ways to help improve that system. And when I talked to mentors and faculty members and other folks that I reached out to for advice, they suggested a couple of things. One is they said, well, you probably should get a little bit more fluent in what the policies are that have set the system up and certainly are well-meaning, but have sometimes led to the chaos that we currently encounter. And that motivated the health policy exploration. The second was they encouraged that I pursue a research career in studying how those systems were set up and where things were working and where they weren't so that we could have more data-driven information on where we might start to improve the system. And so that's what motivated my move into epidemiology and health services research. And part of that is just needing to get familiar with the tools of statistics and epidemiologic design and other ways to, to really characterize the systems of care that we currently have. So that's why I took a, a year doing health policy and then I interspersed my epidemiology training with my cardiology fellowship so that when I was done, I was able to uh, step into a career that was both clinical practice, but also health services research and started to build my career in that way. Can I ask you, you spend a lot of time in the digital health world now. How do you think your background in policy and epidemiology shaped how you think about digital health, which I mean, might be different than some folks who don't come from that background? Yeah, there were two, two things that I think have been really helpful in that with my current digital health work. One is because I'm a little more familiar with how health policy works. And I would describe it sometimes as how do the regulations work and how does the reimbursement work? And so understanding those two trends really helps me understand, will a digital health tool or application or process thrive or not? Because if it's not taking into account the realities of regulation and reimbursement in healthcare, there's no way it's going to survive. And I think that's helped me understand what digital applications might be useful for our health system and also for colleagues who are pursuing startups or businesses giving them some real-world advice about what brick walls might you run into and how do you think about that. So I, I think that's on the policy side. On the epidemiology side, it's interesting. In healthcare research, we speak the language of scientific inquiry. We talk about experiments and hypotheses, and in statistics, we talk about randomized controlled trials and p-values and statistical significance. And as I got familiar with digital health, I realized the tech world actually speaks the same concepts in a different language. So now instead of randomized controlled trial, they're going to say A-B testing. And the ongoing sort of agile delivery, rapid learning and iterative cycle, those are small PDSA cycles that we have yeah. in quality improvement in healthcare. So in some ways, like they are fellow believers 
in the scientific method. They've just sort of grown up with their own terminology and approaches. And so in some ways, I feel like my training allows me to translate what people are doing in technology, which is really conceptually sound, and bring it into the medical and research environments in a way that my colleagues with an MD or research training can understand. And so I think that has been both a lot of fun to learn. And then I also think it helps us build real evidence, real data behind the digital applications we use to prove that they work. And in medicine, if you don't have proof that it works, we're not going to use it. And we shouldn't just because of the stakes involved. So it's been, I, I wouldn't have anticipated it at the beginning, but there's been a real synergy between the research and the policy and then what digital health needs to do to have the impact that helps to. I love that comment you made about how you can bridge that gap between the technical folks and the the healthcare folks. So like the idea that the PDSA cycle is somewhat analogous to the software development cycle and, and the iterative process and in tech development. I thought that was really, really smart. That's a great way to, to bridge them. You mentioned about the the reimbursement piece of when it comes to digital. And you know, I've heard two trains of thought. Some folks say, well, we gotta somehow tie billing and fee for service to digital health. So I'm, you know, CPT codes, remote monitoring, or maybe digital therapeutic billing codes. And others have said, well, actually, we need to just invest more in like value-based care reimbursement. And then that will pull the right digital health that actually improves the outcome into the system. I'm curious if you have a perspective on how reimbursement should be designed in a way to, to drive uh, effective use of digital health? So that's a great question. And I think we often approach it not stating that sentence or that choice as an or statement, but an and statement, because we're going to live in this sort of hybrid world for a while. You know, in my own health system, uh, we're probably somewhere between 30 and 40% value-based contracts. And probably the biggest population under that kind of schema is our ACO. So there's a lot of ROI to be had in a value-based environment with digital health applications. And a lot of it just comes from the fact that digital data and digital tools often focus teams on where the need is the most acute, and they allow for proactive detection and ideally intervention of medical conditions, be they acute and chronic. And all of those get to the more uh, effective use of resource and the more cost-efficient use of resource. And that, of course, is the currency of the realm in a value-based contract and an NACO or other forms that it takes. At the same time, 30 to 40% value-based means you know, 70 to 60 to 70% fee-for-service. And it is true that regardless of whether or not you're treating somebody face-to-face -face or interacting with them digitally, it takes time and it takes expertise. And it is important that we have reimbursement for that expertise. And so there are some CPT codes now for evaluating remote monitoring data or reaching out to somebody to help manage their care remotely. Whether or not it ends up solving the reimbursement puzzle in a way that's sustainable, I think is an open question. But I do think there probably is value on the fee-for-service side wherever those reimbursement schemes continue to exist that we think a little bit more about the time and expertise investment, the RVUs, I know they're a flawed system, but the overall concept of paying for the time and expertise is important to apply to digital health because the way that we're working to use those tools is changing, but it still takes my time. So I don't know that we ever need to move to 
a legal model where you're billing for every six minutes that you spend <laughs> thinking about something. But I, I do think we need to think about a way to reimburse the effort going into digital health activities. Ultimately, though, I think the answer is if you're paying us, meaning your care team, to keep you healthy, then any tool that's going to help us do that, and digital health tools done right well, can can just really be a, a cost savings and a, and a health generator. Uh, and I think the ROI will sort of speak for itself. Yeah. And I think you hit the nail on the head with the digital tools done right piece uh, can definitely help us get there. And on that note, you're now the vice president of digital products and innovation at your healthcare innovation lab at BJC. And I know you created that. And I was curious, what's the origin story for the lab? How did it come to be? And what are your focus areas today? Yeah. So the lab was the brainchild of our now retired chief clinical officer, an infectious disease doctor here named Clay Dunnigan. And he and his CEO at the time, a guy named Steve Lipstein, this is probably in 2015, were just noticing the rapid acceleration of both the digitization of health data, as well as the creation of digital tools, largely informed by how rapidly the tech industry was growing. And I think they both said, man, we really need to better understand how this is going to apply to our healthcare operations and the patients that we serve. So they set aside some money to provide a place where a group of people could survey the landscape of what is all the digital innovation happening and how might it impact us as a health system? What might we bring in to our clinics and to our hospitals and into our uh, physician and patient interactions to really help us achieve the health outcomes we're trying to do. And so that was the overall intent. And then they did a search and we got connected through that. And I think they were intrigued by my research background so that I could set up essentially the tests of concept, yeah. pilots or whatever they need to be of the digital technologies to make sure they work for us. And really kind of harness the, the academic flavor that WashU and BJC has and make sure that what we're doing actually matters and has data behind it. So I arrived in 2017. We built a team now, probably 10 or so. It's a mix of people, some clinicians, some healthcare administrators, folks with a lot of experience in, in process improvement. And we also have epic analysts, data scientists, folks who are fluent in some of the data and analysis that are needed for these tools. And then we uh, organize our work in sort of three broad buckets of activity. One is every year we're taking a look at the strategic priorities of our health system and saying, where are there digital tools that might help us achieve those goals? So for example, like a lot of systems, we're under a lot of strain from our nursing staff. It's just been hard to fill slots and the nurses that we do have are just very overworked. So are there ways to augment their workflow with digital tools that can offload some of that burden and help us continue to deliver care with the staff that we have? So those are strategic priorities that we're always paying attention to and looking for ideas there. The second stream is our job in part is to be able to lift our heads up from the day-to-day -day activities of the health system and see what's coming on the horizon. So what digital innovations are we seeing that we don't yet know how they're going to apply to our patients, but we suspect they will. And can we start getting some experience with that? So one very sort of front of mind application is all the large language models, which obviously are in the midst of their peak of inflated, inflated expectations. 
And we fully expect that to drop into this trough of despair. But I think there probably are some things that will um, really support our patients and understanding their health conditions and really support our care teams and offloading some of the more administrative documentation burden that right now is really the bane of a lot of healthcare's existence. So we are just now starting to think about, all right, well, what would it take? What do these models do? What do they not do? And what kind of proof do we need to know how to apply this tool in the right way to the folks that we have in our system? So we, we spend some time looking at emerging innovations like that and starting to build a capacity to work with them. And then the final thing is innovation can't and shouldn't live in a single group. At the end of the day, really progressive organizations, both healthcare and beyond, have an innovative culture. And so part of our job is to help build that culture. How can we yes. start to take some of the approaches that we do in the lab and then teach our other employees how to do that? So we have an internal grant program where we provide funding and sort of methodologic support on clinicians and other healthcare employees who want to pilot a new idea and experiment with that. Uh, we have an ongoing speaker series where we bring in folks from around the country who are really innovative thinkers. Uh, some folks I think you've had on your podcast, we had Roy Rosen from Penn. Um, we had John Rumsfeld, who used to be the chief innovation officer for the College of Cardiology before he moved to Meta. We have uh, Leora Horowitz, who leads a lot of digital health efforts out at NYU. So just a variety of folks <laughs> that come in and share with us, well, how are you guys doing it at their home institutions and how might we do it here? So I think those things, digital tools to support our strategic initiatives, getting familiar with the emerging innovations that can inform our healthcare down the road, and then building an innovation culture is how we structure our time. You mentioned uh, kind of providing funding and support for you know new ideas. And I think that's a great segue then to, you have this, I think, amazing annual big ideas competition, I think. You could describe it's kind of like a shark tank initiative almost like run by your lab to get frontline healthcare providers involved in innovation could you share a bit about how that looks at vjc and washu and maybe talk a bit about how that drives some innovation that maybe wouldn't normally happen in a typical health system yeah no it's been it's been a great program so the lab does this in conjunction with washu's institute for informatics so that's where a lot of the research efforts and education efforts occur in data science here at WashU. So their director, an influential named Philip Payne, and I launched the program about five years ago. And the idea was to really sort of unlock the expertise of our employees, uh, and a lot of them were WashU faculty members, to say, okay, we have, we can give you access to the growing electronic data warehouse that we have. We went live with Epic around that time about five years ago. So now we have this sort of digital platform. And we also had a growing sort of data science analytic expertise building largely in the Institute. And so with those assets, we felt like if we could sort of stimulate those ideas in some sort of competition, and that, as you guys know, competitions kind of sharpen the mind, sharpen the proposal. And so we felt like that was a useful tool uh, to employ. And then we gave folks a year, if we if they won the award, they had a year of $50,000 to basically have their idea come to fruition, whatever they might need to do, maybe we need to analyze the data, maybe we need to build a tool, maybe we need to pilot a clinical workflow. And by being able to do that, they could get their initial sort of proof that their idea could hold some water. 
And then the idea was after the year ended, if it was sufficiently successful, then they could go compete for extramural funding or they could talk to some of the operational leaders here with P&L responsibilities to see if they could get more operational funds to build out their program. And I think it's been really helpful. I often speak about our awardees as force multipliers. They come up with ideas and obviously can do the work that our team of 10 could never do on our own. And so it's really been fun. We're now five years in, we've awarded about 30 different grants. And just to really see the creativity and approach that a lot of our physicians and care teams and nurses and even administrators have come up with. I think one of the ones that's had probably the best sticking power came from, of all places, our palliative care group. And so what they were learning is that a lot of patients, when they have essentially a fatal condition, a chronic fatal condition, say in-stage heart failure, in-stage lung disease, or metastatic cancer, that often the conversation wasn't really happening with the family, with the patient, and with their care team about, well, how do you want the end of your life to look? Not the act of death itself, but the final months. Like, what's important to you? You want to spend time with your family? Do you want to be in a particular place? Do you not want to be in the hospital? Which is usually true for folks. But at the end of the day, we are finding that only about 15% of people were having that kind of conversation. And then they were ending up in the final months of their life, yes, often in a hospital, sometimes in an ICU, and just really not taking full advantage of the time they do have in a way that means the most to them. So what this team did was they said, well, I think we can sort of predict who might be at that stage in their health and then proactively reach out back to this idea that digital health can help us focus efforts. So they built a model that helped us identify of our inpatients who was at a high risk for death in the next 30 days. And then they would say, do they have any sort of advanced care plans or other things that indicate that they've already had this conversation? And for the majority that didn't, they just simply sent a message to the treating team. It was through Epic Secure Messaging. And it was a super simple message. It was elegant how simple it was. But they basically said, your patient appears to have this mortality risk in the near term. It doesn't appear that they've had any involvement or palliative care or even discussed their wishes. Can we help? And then they gave them a multiple choice answer. One was, uh, your model sucks, go away, they're totally fine. Okay, that's important to know. B was, you're right, I thought I agree with your assessment, but we've already had the conversation, you just didn't pick up on it. But thank you for you know raising it to our attention. And then C was, you're right, we haven't had the conversation, I'll do it. Thank you for the reminder. And then the final one was, you're right, we haven't had the conversation, can you please come help me as a palliative care service? I'd like your your help in having that conversation. And what was amazing is because it was A, B, C, or D, people would just send back a letter. And I actually got a few of these messages when I was on service. Super simple. And we had 95% response rates. And it was largely come help. So the model was working. The process was working. And then people were able to have those conversations. And in about a quarter of cases, people made a huge change in their care plan. And as a result, we were now delivering much more value and desire concordant care, which is the whole goal. And so it was really cool. I mean, there was some data walking this and building the model. We got excited about all the dorky stuff. But at the end of the day, it was what I believe is the real potential of digital health. And that is the digital tools don't replace the humanity of healthcare. They enable the humanity of healthcare. 
And I think being able to enable that really vulnerable, important, and just such a personal time in somebody's life and doing it proactively, I was like, wow, that's so much more worth than the 50K that we invested in that. And <laughs> it's now running live in a good number of our hospitals. And it's just, it's done really well. So that's an example. I love the idea of digital enabling humanity and, and empathy. I, I'm curious. So when you have something like a big ideas competition, there can only be so many winners, which means that a lot of folks, you know, didn't end up, you know, winning one of the grants. I'm curious, have you seen an outcome where, yeah, maybe some of them just like dropped the idea, but maybe there were some that actually persisted, but it's because they had to do the competition. They even got started in the first place. Any, any stories like that? Yeah, no, that's a it's a great question, and and you're absolutely right. We probably we award probably six a year, and we probably have thirty that do the formal application. So of the ones that don't do it, you know, sometimes the idea dies on the vine, probably appropriately, and that's okay. They went through the exercise of thinking it through. Others actually use the application process to then turn it around and apply for extramural funding. And I don't have the numbers at, at my fingertips, but I certainly know anecdotally that quite a few teams have parlayed that into a successful grant application. And then we've had a, a few who are just persistent. It's been our fifth year and we've seen them apply to sometimes even three times. And sometimes they get it. Sometimes it turns out that their idea changes and actually starts to align with another team. And so sometimes we'll match make. And just say, hey, you guys need to get together because you were barking up the same tree. And I think if you work together, it's going to be a more robust project. So I think to your point and to our goal of improving a culture, we're just starting to raise the visibility of all the cool ideas people have and then just play a big dating game, be it a dating <laughs> game with each other or extramural funding or wherever the paths might take them. And I think that's been a I guess, I think we anticipated it a little bit, but it's been really cool to see a play out empirically. That's, I think one of the neat things too, is when you get them to actually have to put it on paper and like really think yeah. it through, then people start to actually think about like, oh, why will it work? Why won't it work? And they actually go through that whole exercise. I think that's just an amazing thing to do. We also do a, a pitch event where we auto time the slides. You get six slides and they advance automatically after 30 seconds. And so that's a lot more common in sort of the VC and tech world, but it's, it is mind-blowing in academia where, you know, you would think we get paid by the word given how much we've drawn on and on and on. So I think just like you have 30, 30 seconds to share this thought, that also crystallizes it really well for them as well. Can you imagine doing that at a scientific conference where the slides were, were auto advanced? <laughs> oh, it'd be, it'd be awesome. I'm, I, I keep trying to advance it at the uh, American College of Cardiology. I'll get there. Oh, that's so funny. That's amazing. So, Tom, I actually wanted to get your thoughts. You shared in the past this idea of using virtual outreach clinics, creative uses of EPPs and other allied professionals, and anticipatory care via predictive analytics to support patients and improve social determinants of health. Could you unpack some of those strategies for us? Yeah, you know, I, in addition to the digital health stuff that I that I do, I've been helping lead some workforce efforts at the American College of Cardiology. And cardiology is under a lot of strain and pressure in their workforce. And we're not alone. I think most of medicine is facing this. But 
you know, one thing we've been thinking about in the context of that crisis is if we're going to be short on professionals and we can't overstress those who are actively working, we're seeing legion levels of burnout and we have to do something to start to improve our workflow to, to address that. I think there's a nice intersection on what we're starting to learn around how digital technology and the accompanying workflow can do to alleviate some of those burdens. And so some of what uh, you, you mentioned is what we thought about previously and actually still, we have some staff that literally travel to remote parts of our state here in Missouri, but this was true back west and anywhere that we're practicing to go and see patients. And the idea that you're going to do that and that that's a good use of people's time is crazy. So, you know, we certainly had telehealth before the pandemic, but now that it's just what everybody knows how to do, I think starting to think about how do you manage a chronic condition or manage a patient's journey using this interleaving of in-person, you always need in-person for some things, but to be really thoughtful about data coming back from them as well as the synchronous sort of video conversations that you might have when they're at work or at home or not having to take half a day off work, come sit in your waiting room. Everybody gets the value of that. I think we're still not great at designing the workflows to really build that to its optimal state. So I think that's where we need to head next. I also think that although there are plenty of systems that are using our APP colleagues in a more effective way, we're not doing it globally. And I think the use of protocols, the use of leveraging all the variety of skills that we have beyond just the MD or the DO is still in early innings. And so I think there's a lot more room there. And our, the college is thinking about how do we share best practices on team structure and frankly, what your job is as a doctor and the leader of that team. Like we're not trained to be team leaders. We're trained to be individual contributors to use a business term. And, and that's ultimately not scalable. And so we really need to start to learn about how do we direct a team and have everybody work in the most effective way, even if we're not the ones doing that work. And that will be a new muscle for a yeah. lot of medicine and in our training programs. So I think all of those are aspects that, you know, I'm excited to see how we can use what we're learning in digital health to, to support. I often think about a vision I've had for a long time. I don't know if it'll be realized in my lifetime, but previously or currently in our outpatient clinics, we schedule people three months out, six months out, a year out. And then I open up my calendar for the day and I see those people I've scheduled. At the end of the day, I don't see why my clinic schedule shouldn't be blank every day. And in the morning, what should happen is we're getting all these data feeds that I'm, we're getting, hey, Joe, in the last two weeks has shown a drop in his exercise routine. And he's been picking up more of these anti-anginal pills from the pharmacy recently. And he's stressed about his mom's illness. And so he's like bought an extra four packs of cigarettes. And he visited the ER two days ago at another system. And the idea that can we get all these data points? And they would say, mm, there is something developing there. There's a red flag with Joe. I've scheduled him for your clinic at 9 a.m. And then my day fills up with those people that we're learning that the that our ecosystem is telling us need my help now. And that if you're otherwise healthy and doing well, I don't need your sort of regular check-in and a disruption to your day to just say, oh yeah, you're doing well. You're like, yeah, I knew yeah. that. But rather have this proactive system 
that engages me and the expertise I can provide at the time when I'm needed at the highest yield place. So many things to put together to do that well, but I really do believe we have the foundational elements out there. So it's time to construct them. Can I ask you, so, so let's say we had the data, the reliable data stream, we had the predictive models, we had all the, the tech aspects of that potential world working. Is that all we need? Or do you feel like there's still something missing, whether it's change management, culture, reimbursement that we'd still have to, to get over some hurdles on? Yeah, well, so on the reimbursement side, I think it's back to the value base. Like that only works in a value base. So I think continue to push for that. And I'm seeing good movement there. I've actually been impressed by a lot of the commercial payers getting on that bandwagon and starting to write value-based contracts for providers like us. You know, regulation in healthcare, we typically think about, well, are the drugs and devices we use safe, which is obviously important. The real regulation that we need now is data. Like the fact that everybody knows how outdated HIPAA is. It was, it was written before anything was really available from a digital point of view. We also know that just broadly beyond healthcare, there's a lot of activity in the data privacy realm. And certainly some of the, the right to be forgotten ideas coming out of Europe, and some of that starting to move into California and other places of, of the United States, I think that will continue to grow. And so I think we're going to have to think about, A, obviously, how do we protect sensitive data? But B, how do we make sure that the right level of control is in the patient's hands? There may be people in my example, maybe Joe's like, I don't want to give you any of my data. And we're like, fine. Like, that's your call. That is, you're free to do that. And we need to build a system that allows for that. I think we also need to make it very clear that by not doing that, you limit the tools I have to help you. And that's your call. You can agree to that. And I'll, I'll, I'll totally respect your decision. But just know that this is the trade-off, one versus the other. And then the final thing is, I, I think w the use of data traditionally in tech, not to put too fine a point on it, has been to sell ads. All right. So it's all designed to do that. Like leaky and cookies and everything else going on there. That framework is not going to work for healthcare. And so I don't know that we have to start from scratch. I hope we don't. But I, I think we have to figure out the right sort of acceptable use, privacy, and opt out strategies that create the data ecosystem that allows for somebody to be eyes wide open, but also feel good that if you give us your trust, we will respect it and not violate it. And so obviously a ton of work to do there and a lot of smart folks are thinking it through, but really to me, that is gonna be a key enabler to, to the vision I laid out. Love the vision. That's awesome. Tom, just being mindful of your time, let's flip over to a fast five lightning round. Quick five questions to get to know you better for our audience. The first question we have is what is your favorite book or book you've gifted the most? Well, fully acknowledging my availability bias. I just finished Endurance, which is the the <laughs> I guess the biography of Shackleton's Antarctica, not tragedy, it actually turned out great, but the adventure, if you will, that occurred <laughs> in the early nineteen hundreds. And it's just, I, I could not stop reading. I cannot believe they made it through what they made over the course of a year. Just the, the hardships they endured. And then frankly, the leadership that Shackleton showed in guiding his men through that was just unbelievable. So it's a gripping read and I highly recommend it. Question two, who's a person either dead or alive you'd love to meet? Yeah, it's funny. I was thinking about that question. 
I'm always disappointed when I meet celebrities. You know, you think you build them up in your head, mm-hmm. and then they're just a normal view and like the rest of us. You're like, oh, all right. So in that vein, I actually think who I'd really enjoy meeting are my grandparents and great-grandparents at the age that I am now. Mm-hmm. And I would just love to say, right now, 52. So you're now 52, grandfather, great-grandfather. Tell me a little bit about your life and the lessons you've learned and what you think and how you're going to, what are you going to do next? And and their answers, their outlook, obviously it would be colored by where they were living in history. I think it would just be fascinating, both to sort of understand a little bit of my origins and my family's origins, but also just the perspective of a person at that age in the mid-1900s or the great-grandfather around the turn of the century. Yeah, that'd be cool. Question three, would you rather have super strength, super speed, or the ability to read people's minds? Read minds every day and twice on Sunday. That'd be so helpful. So helpful. Love it. We have a follow-up to that question. So what if you couldn't turn that power off? Like you can't yeah, control when you're- Yeah, wasn't there a movie about that? There was some movie about that. Yeah, it would be, I'd have to like, that would be hell. <laughs> there is- yeah. There, you know, it's all the, it's a superhero tru- truism, right? There's no power that doesn't come with its uh, with its trade off. So that would, right. yeah, we I need an off switch. That's a good point. I should make that caveat. Read minds and have an off switch. Right. I <laughs> uh, love it. Question four: What is something in healthcare you believe that others might find insane? I think it's insane that we as a system are not paid to keep you healthy. And I think people who first get into it, it, it's sad, but true that our trainees at some point have that realization, generally around residency. And it's it's one of the reasons, frankly, that I'm, I'm interested in the systems design, and in this case, how digital health can help. But it really is, it's not nefarious per se, but the system, it's crazy how it's sick care and not health care. Yeah. Uh, last question that we have, if you could travel back in time to any event or moment in history, what would it be and why? So I actually think it would be fascinating if I were part of Marco Polo's expedition when they encountered China. When I was a history major in college, I had a professor who was a Chinese expert. I took a couple of classes with him. So started to learn about the culture. We basically studied the Qing dynasty, but obviously the breadth of Chinese history. And I've always just been fascinated that the West and the East grew up completely independently of one another until 1400 or whenever Marco Polo made the the trip over. And it's just this amazing natural experiment about how would you organize a society? And you had two groups of people that did it, independent one of another, and came up with very different answers in all aspects, be it how the government's organized or an economy or a religion or a philosophy or an art or anything else. And I just, I can't imagine him coming with his Western eyes and then seeing the Eastern culture be like, oh my God, totally like just what a explosion in your head at the time to kind of learn about all that and just sort of compare and contrast two different cultures. So um, I don't know if you thought that all at once, but I, I think it would be a fascinating time in history to be a participant and an observer. That's definitely, yeah, that would be awesome. Thank you, Tom. Thanks for spending your time with us today. You can find Tom on Twitter at MedTMaddox. And that's a wrap for this episode of The Digital Patient, hosted by SeamlessMD. You can follow us on Twitter at SeamlessMD. And if you like the podcast, 
you want to learn more, visit www.seamless.md. Tom, Dr. Maddox, again, thank you so much for the awesome discussion. There's so many great pearls of wisdom that you sprinkled out throughout the conversation. And we're really appreciative of your time today. Thank you. It was great to talk to you both.